Journeys of Faith. Hello, my name is Erin Therese. I'm 31 and I'm from the United States. The easiest way for me to talk about my conversion is to go back about two years ago uh, when I was in Chicago attending High Mass at St. John Cantius Parish. At that point I had been Catholic for about a year, so when I went to confession just before that Mass, I made sure to tell the priest that I was a convert from an atheist background and would need some help along in the confession process. I remember during the confession this singular moment when incense was already filling the church, the light, the beauty, everything that had drawn me to the Catholic faith was around me. And the priest asked me, so you were an atheist, how did you come to the church? Uh, for a moment, I really was stuck. It seemed impossible to give a quick answer to such a vast question. So after thinking for a moment, I simply said, Well, I could no longer deny the reality of God in my life, and I fell in love with Jesus Christ. Um, the difficult thing about talking about your conversion is it's, it's not just being able to give a reason for your faith. I think you have to face up to some of the, the hardest, darkest parts of your own life and see the light in them. Really dig deep into yourself to find that light. So I think my journey from, from atheist to Catholic could basically be summed up in, in that answer that I gave in those two steps. The first, coming to terms philosophically with the existence of God, and then getting beyond the philosophy and realizing that the truth I was searching for was actually already searching for me. To talk about the first step, I would have to go back to my very early childhood when my father was my entire world. He shaped me as a person, and as he was atheist, I took on that worldview. However, his, his atheism was very different, perhaps, from what you often find today. It really wasn't a careless dismissal of God. It was a deep, conscientious questioning about what truth was and how we could know truth. I know that he had had a lot of bad experiences, particularly in relation to Christianity, as I did growing up, um, I was constantly attacked in the schoolyard about my family's irreligion and I was told by my classmates that my father and I were going to hell. So Christians never made me feel loved or accepted. Um, my father had come to believe that we could only know what our five senses told us and nothing beyond that. So I grew up with a sense that believing in God 
was somehow unintelligent or morally lazy. Yet something else my father also taught me was that love was the highest reality, which is ironic when you consider that, well, how can we really know love or that we are loved through our five senses? We can't. It's something beyond that. I was taught to believe in the dignity of man and in his great capacity for love. I was taught to question everything, to desire truth above all things. So somewhere along the way, this desire for truth became linked with the experience of love itself, and that bond between truth and love remained with me. As a child, I, I watched my father go in and out of the hospital with several heart attacks. I watched him suffer and die very slowly. I can remember being about five or six years old and trying to figure out how I could make my parents live forever. I was always worried about death. Yet when it actually came, um, my father died when I was thirteen, something completely unexpected also happened. It was a dark time. My bereavement was turbulent and fraught with suffering, but the suffering was a springboard into faith. I know for many people, suffering makes them question their faith, question the existence of God, because they ask, well, if God existed, why wouldn't he prevent this? Or they can't work out the injustice of suffering in their own lives. But I had no baseline for God. I never said a prayer in my life. I never asked him to save my father. I never thought I had a right to do that. So I, I didn't have God on my radar. And for that reason, I didn't attribute my suffering to him. I experienced suffering as the common denominator in human life. And I think that going through death early on in life brought me more into unity with others because I quickly realized that everyone is suffering and that there is death and darkness to go through in every life. So I never asked, why did God do this to me? I simply felt that I was navigating the natural course of human life. And I saw the suffering of this world as either the inevitable course of nature or the result of our own freedom to choose, often to make the evil choice. So in this way I was actually already in line with much of Catholic thinking, but I of course didn't know it. What made me actually ask the question of God was not the suffering, but the experience of the transcendent which came out of that darkness. In the midst of it, there was light. I had such a strong experience of eternal love pouring through. I began to know that my father and I were linked, that we're all in relationship to one another in a way that death proves no barrier against. There was this incredible 
affirmation of eternal love in my life and I began to ponder this eternity that love sprang from. A few years later, when I was 18, I moved to London and studied psychology at London South Bank University and I would say there was very much an atheist agenda behind the teaching of the course as there is in most academia, especially the sciences. As part of the course, I studied evolutionary biology, which is basically the foundation for modern psychology. And I also studied the philosophy of science, which I absolutely loved because it took out the illusion of absolute truth from science. What often appears to be objective empiricism inevitably rests on a philosophical foundation that has to be first assented to and believed in in much the same way that religion is. Uh, on the other hand, I was, I was really miserable with the rest of my courses because I just didn't believe what I was being taught. For instance, that love doesn't really exist. It's just a human concept that has grown up around our selfish desire to pass on our DNA as much as possible. Um, there's no spirit, there's no soul, it's just a series of chemical reactions setting off reactors in my brain. So, in fact, I'm nothing at all. My biology is the puppet master, and I as a person am merely a subjective reality that doesn't actually exist at all. I just didn't believe it. it. It didn't match up with my experience of what it is to be a human being. And yet, I was only really being taught what I had always been taught, that there's no reality beyond the material. So I realized that I actually believed quite fervently that there was something beyond I did believe that we were more than the sum of our parts. I did believe that love existed. I did believe that the eternal existed. And I realized I also believed that there was some part of us that was eternal, or at least had the capacity for the eternal. So it, it seemed clear to me that man was made for the transcendent, and unbeknownst to me, my own thoughts were converging with the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. My logic basically ran like his, that an immaterial thing cannot arise or be produced by a material thing. So we can produce thought, which is an immaterial thing, so there must be some part of us as human beings that is immaterial. And I also questioned evolution itself. It was explaining a process of creation, but it, it wasn't accounting for an origin. Um, it wasn't explaining how something could come from nothing. It wasn't explaining how a single atom, space, anything came suddenly to be. How and why existence itself came to exist. 
So again, I had unknowingly stumbled upon Aquinas's logic of the uncaused cause. I understood clearly that all things must go back to a single cause, a cause which was itself uncaused, that all existence had to derive from one who did not come to exist, but was existence itself. So in this state, I had philosophically come to believe in God, but my progress towards Christianity was much slower. I had grown up with so many bad experiences of Christians that I just couldn't even bear to hear the words Jesus Christ. They were absolutely repugnant to me, those three syllables. I didn't know that they would come to be the Alpha and Omega of my life. After I moved to England, um, I began to see Christianity in a much different light than the one shown me by the Protestant fundamentalism of the American South I had grown up in. The cross was everywhere. Christ was everything. He was the light dispersed in Gothic cathedrals. He was etched into art, architecture, literature as the cornerstone. He was the sublime gaze of saints in stained-glass windows that looked down at me and seemed to illumine life's hidden meaning. Um, the more I explored history, particularly British history, I met with something ancient and pure, and I came to realize that the cross was the axis on which all history had turned. My English husband, whose conversion was intertwined with my own, also inspired me with this love of all things medieval, and I was absolutely enthralled by the medieval romances I started to read, particularly Tennyson's um, Idols of the King. And I quickly discovered that the foundation for chivalry was Christ, and it became clear to me that this wasn't a fairy world. Uh... It, it was real. It could be real because it had Christ as its root, and human beings could be their greatest selves when they were centered on Christ. And you can actually see evidence of this in the life of the 6th century Welsh saint, St. Dufric, who was a contemporary and I really think a helper of King Arthur. So I, I know that the Knights of the Round Table are probably not usually cited as influences in conversion stories, but for me, it, it, it helped me realize that if I wanted to be caught up in the romance of love and life, if I wanted to be my greatest self, I had to have Christ at the center of my life. My husband and I got married in the Easter break of our last year at university, and after graduation we moved from London down to Devon, where we made our first home together, and we were absolutely in love with the Devonshire Moors, and we chose to live in Ivybridge, which is a little town that forms the gateway to the Two Moors Way, so we were able to spend 
a lot of time exploring the moorlands, and many of my afternoons were spent walking up on Dartmoor, particularly around the area known as the Western Beacon. And looking back, I would call that moor my Damascus. Um, it was here, finally, that the beauty of God overwhelmed me, seduced me, drew me into him. I would pass through groves of hawthorn, hedgerows laden with wild flowers and spicy with the scent of summer. And when I issued out into the open moorland with martins swooping above me, it was as though a veil had been lifted, and instead of gazing into the beauty of the landscape, I was gazing beyond it, into the face of the author of beauty, the great mystery himself. I could say with Wordsworth, in his lines composed above Tintern Abbey, and I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thoughts, and rolls through all things. I think what changed at that time was that God was no longer a philosophical question. He was a personal presence in my life, and he'd only grow to be more so. I would call it a, a mutual inbreathing. He was visiting me, stretching out his hand to me, filling me up with his spirit, and there was such a sense of intimate communion that I discovered God was not a what, but a who. This was the turning point, and this was what enabled me to become a Christian. Encountering God became this great romance, and it was from here that I fell in love with Jesus Christ who is the incarnate presence of God among us. So, on a visit to Exeter Cathedral, my husband and I were watching the choir boys file in for Evensong, and I remember longing to be part of the service, but I felt so nervous because I felt like such an outsider, and like I, I just I didn't have a place there. So, I think seeking to encourage me, my husband said, let's go in. And as we did, we, we passed beneath the archway of the root screen. And it was like passing through a gateway in my life that God had left open for me so that I could come fully into him. As the choir sang, the words of the Magnificat floated airily through the rafters and up into heaven and I could unite the murmurings of my own heart to those words my soul doth magnify the Lord I knew what that meant I had had that feeling I understood it um, that's the way I felt out on those moors so 
Now, instead of Christianity being foreign to me, I progressively realized that it was already a part of me. Um, in fact, the more I read, the more we attended church services, uh, I discovered that this was a truth so instinctive that the Bible was already written on my heart. And from that time, my Christian faith grew and grew, and when my husband and I decided to take a year out and go traveling on the continent of Europe, I think it was the best decision we ever made because it converted us. It didn't just affirm our newfound Christianity, it, it confirmed us in the Catholic faith. It wasn't just the beauty of Catholicism, it was how organic it was. It was absolutely central to people's lives. It wasn't compartmentalized. It wasn't something just for Sunday. Um, I would watch people go in and out of the cathedrals and parishes, lighting candles, kneeling, and it was just part of their daily routine. It was something they did on the way home from the market. I realized that faith wasn't just for the sublime, for ecstasies, it was in everything, God was in the details. So I think although my husband and I felt really a great inclination towards the Anglican Church, there were two things that made us hold back from being baptized in it, and the first was the desire to be part of a church that wasn't just an idea or an institution, it was really an historical reality uh, rooted back to Christ and the Apostles. Um, the Catholic Church truly makes Jesus present to us, not just through the sacraments, but, but through its historical foundations. And I also, I didn't like the way the Anglican Church always seemed to be sitting on the fence about so many things. Um, there were so many good and beautiful things about Anglicanism that I loved, but I could trace them back to the Catholic Church. But the modern Anglican Church, it didn't seem to have the clarity of direction and teaching that, that you get from Rome. And I wanted everything that belonged to the Catholic Church. I wanted to become part of this beautiful masterpiece. I wanted to have rosary beads woven around my fingers the way I had seen them around the hands of the faithful in these beautiful churches. I wanted to acclaim Mary as my mother, too. It would still actually take a few years before we were baptized, and, and at first we didn't know how to go about it, because when we looked into it, it was a, seemed quite a complicated process, having to be prepared, find sponsors, especially as we didn't know anyone who was Catholic at the time. Um, and we were also living in between America and England, so we couldn't commit to being at the same church every week for six months or a year. At this point, it was Mary who came to our aid. I was interested in photography, and I happened to be out perusing the photo site Flickr, and I came across this image of the Immaculate Conception, 
There was unlike anything I'd seen before, and I was totally swept away with her beauty. She felt like my true mother in this particular image. So I found out the image was Our Lady of Farm Street, and that she stood in the parish of the same name in London. And my husband and I decided to take a risk and write to the parish and ask if they would be willing to prepare us for baptism under our rather unusual circumstances. And the priests of this church were just absolutely amazing. Um, we were given to a Jesuit priest. This was a church served by a community of Jesuits. And he was just ever at our need, preparing us, teaching us, forming us, just meeting us where we were. He became like a father to me, and I began to see that God had never left me fatherless after the death of my own father. He was showing me in this priest that he was my father. God, my father, wanted to be a father to me. Um, during the process of preparation for baptism, St. Therese of Lisieux took up this sisterly role in my life, and our preparation for baptism actually happened to coincide with the visit of her relics to Walsingham, which was already quite a special place for us. So I found in Therese a kindred spirit. She had she'd also gone through early bereavement. She was able to just so poetically realize the romance of God in her life. And yet she did it in such a practical way, and her ability to help me become small before others and before God taught me the Christian virtues that perhaps had been lacking in my upbringing. In fact, what St. Therese was teaching me was not just to think my faith and believe in it, but to live it. So the, the preparation for reception to the church also required a lot of study on my part. I hadn't grown up with concepts like the Incarnation, the Holy Trinity, salvation. I mean, even prayer itself was really a relatively new idea to me. But I, I did find Catholic theology so intuitive. I had always had that link between truth and love. There was a guiding light for me, and now it was evident that God was both truth and love, and our existence was rooted in him. How could the God of love not have wanted to become personally present to us, to meet us and dialogue with us and make himself one with us? The Incarnation was such a natural course of love's action. The Eucharist was so blaringly obvious to me that I didn't understand how half of modern Christendom could deny it or need to dissect it theologically. Of course, it's not something we understand in academic terms, but this is the God of love that we believe in, and it just seems so logical that this God of love would offer himself to us in that way. If we are Christians, we believe in miracles. And what greater miracle of love could there be? Um, my 
personal logic about the Eucharist ran that if God could, then God would, and he can, so he does. So, coming from outside of Christianity, I think actually blessed me with this simplicity in my faith. And in March of 2010, I was baptized, confirmed, had my first Holy Communion, and as my husband and I were baptized together, our marriage became sacramentally Catholic and was blessed by our dear spiritual father at Farm Street, who I have to mention with great gratitude, Father Tony Nye. Um, and now I've been Catholic for three years and have definitely gone through many ups and downs with my faith. There's been trials and it's always a continuing process of conversion. I think I'll probably need more time to look back at this particular period in my life and to be able to understand what God is doing with me right now. Um, but I would say the one major process of conversion at this time has been the birth of our daughter. And ever since I was a child, I was terrified of of pregnancy. I've always had a phobia, a very severe phobia of hospitals, needles, anything medical. And I really wasn't sure I wanted children. I certainly didn't want to go through pregnancy. I was terrified of it. And I, I was content with my life as it was. Um, however, my husband and I felt the need to open ourselves to the possibility of God's vision for our life, and not really being sure whether or not we were called to be parents, we prayerfully asked God to show us the way. If it hadn't been for Jesus Christ in my life, I might never have had a child. So this incredible person who now exists, she owes her existence to Christ in so many ways. There were complications through the pregnancy that realized my old fears and because it was something I had never been sure of wanting, I did find going through pregnancy and birth and adopting to motherhood very difficult. Um, I went through a lot of depression too during the first year of my daughter's life and yet I found this sublime joy, this opening of my eyes to God's vision, not just for my life but for existence itself. I began to be able to see humanity more from God's point of view um, because I was caught up in the process of creation and I could feel myself becoming part of God's hopes and dreams and wanting to work to work towards them with him. So as in the life of faith itself, there there are trials and certainly depressions, but God walks with us through the night that issues forth into light, and as it says in Psalm seventy six, we become employed in his inventions. And that's the greatest joy in life. Now when I find myself praying with my daughter, 
It's amazing. I didn't say a prayer until I was in my 20s. Um, and yet now I'm sharing prayer with my daughter and hopefully being a teacher of prayer for her. So that's contrary to all the expectations I had about my life. There's a children book of prayer of hers in which there's a prayer that reads something like, With Mary, I sing out my happiness to God. And that's what I want to do now with my conversion and with my life. I, I want my life to become a canticle of praise to make known my gratitude that I am alive in God. Amen.